You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. What is vision? I think Helen Keller describes it best. She said, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. When I was a graduate student in counseling psychology, I had an internship class and professor that dramatically changed the direction of my work. The professor challenged us to think about purpose or message we believed we were uniquely qualified to give the world. He taught us that knowing this would guide our work as therapists and healers. He called this one's kerygma. Now, if you Google this Greek word kerygma, you will find its origin in Christianity, meaning to proclaim, announce, preach, as Jesus did regarding salvation. But the idea of kerygma as a statement of purpose is transcultural and transcends religion. Through a process of self-reflection, I came to discover that my kerygma was this, learn from connections. These three simple words became a driving force through which creativity and ultimately a vision was manifested. This idea of everyone having a unique message to give the world struck such a chord with me that I became obsessed with it. So much so that I developed an idea for a therapy practice for healing trauma around the idea that the core of healing is to become reconnected with one's soul, one's purpose, one's core message. Following many sleepless nights, as I ruminated on this idea, a vision of a mandala came from within. A mandala literally means circle or wheel. It is a spiritual and ritual symbol in Hinduism and Buddhism representing the universe. With the belief that each one of us represents the universe and exists as connections within ourselves and others, my mandala was born. I'd like to share this vision with you now. Imagine this mandala as a wheel, wherein the center of the wheel comprises your purpose, your calling, your message to the world. From that center, imagine eight different spokes stretching outward toward the larger outside circle. At the end of each of these spokes, along the outer edge of the wheel, are various aspects of you, things connected to you. These include family, relationships, community, and work, among others. This wheel represents a holistic view of you. As you focus your mind on the center of the wheel, you may be asking yourself, what is my purpose? What is my message to the world? Some of you may already know the answer to this question. Some may not. As you bring your attention to the outer edge of the wheel that represents things connected to you, what questions do you find yourself asking? Are you wondering, what communities am I a part of? What is my work, my vocation? Who is in my life? I challenge you to envision this wheel and the questions differently. Ask yourselves instead, what communities fit into me? What work fits into me? What relationships in my life fit into who I am and what I value? We cannot know the answers to these questions without knowing the core of who we are and what makes us unique. We operate in a world that consistently tells us who, what, when, and where we are supposed to be. 
When we are truly aligned with our purpose in life, we can free ourselves from I should be and open up to I am. Amid the journey of this emerging concept, I was on vacation with my husband and son in Duluth. I had gotten up early one morning at the hotel and was reading Care of the Soul by Thomas More. Suddenly, I heard a voice. It said, learn from connections. Those three words in that moment were a command. I received such clarity that I was being told we learn about that which is beyond ourselves, call it God, higher power, life force, through connections. My kerygma had transformed into a calling. I knew then and there that my work would focus on helping others heal from trauma and learn that through their own connections within themselves and with others, purpose and meaning are possible. We can change the pictures in our heads of how it's supposed to be by opening ourselves to the idea that we already have a vision, a purpose, within ourselves. We just need more than our eyes to see it. What do we as individuals and as a congregation envision as our message? What do we bring to our community and ultimately to the world that is unique? When we understand this, all else will follow. Come, let us worship. Our reading this morning is from Adrian Marie Brown, author of Emergent Strategy, Organizer, Activist, um, Dreamer. She writes this. We are living in impossible times. If it were fiction, it would be critiqued as hyperbole. If it were nightmares, we would never sleep. We are living in times created by our own species. Our visions are ropes through the devastation. Look further ahead, like our ancestors did. Look further, extend, hold on, pull, evolve. So friends, you may know this hymn. Uh, in this teal hymnal, there's a song with the line that says, you got to do when the spirit says do. We've sung that before. You got to dance when the spirit says dance. You got to laugh. You got to act. Basically, it's like when the spirit's moving in your life, you got to respond. I'm curious, how many of you have had the spirit say do in your life? And before we get too hung up on spirit, you might be like, I don't believe in spirit. Maybe, maybe for you it's God moving in your life. Maybe it's deep intuition. Maybe it's deep knowing. Maybe it's love. Call it what you will. But how many of you have had that, that source prompting you in your life to do something? Yeah, I see some hands in the back. A lot of us, we've had that experience, that thing that begins to poke us and prod us and provoke us and stir us up. And we can feel the edges of our world start to shake and tremor and heave, and we know, if we're listening, if we're paying attention, we're on the edge of something brand new. Maybe it's when we enter into a committed relationship after being single for a long time, and the old boundaries of that single life, they begin to change and morph and reshape themselves in this whole new roadmap of what a shared life looks like that emerges. Or maybe we take a new job or change careers or go back to school to follow this, this yearning, this longing, this, this almost ethereal thing that is pushing us in a new direction. Or maybe we've experienced a life-threatening illness or we've lost 
a loved one. And we felt the Spirit pulling us into a fundamentally different life, a different way of being, the sense of I cannot, I cannot continue as I have been. In my experience, when the Spirit stirs, it is often hinting at a larger, more expansive vision of your life, something that is a bit terrifying, upending, something that is remaking and often remarkable. And when the Spirit's prompting us, I've learned it's best to pay attention. How about you? How do you respond when the Spirit says, do? Let me share a story with you. When I started my ministry here over nine and a half years ago, I was called by vote of this congregation to serve as your senior minister. It was an incredible moment. It was one I will never forget. I remember being over at Gigi's Cafe with my wife and um, family, our young son, Tucker, at the time. And then Nancy Gashat, the chair of the church committee, called. And she's like, all right, the congregation has voted. Come on back. And it happened really quick. So I was like, well, whatever it is, they're really clear about this. So it's either a great thing or there's some hard news that I'm going to hear. And it was good news. I came back into the sanctuary to so many of you in this space. And it was just this amazing moment in my ministry that I will never forget. Reverend Kate Tucker was the associate minister then, and she and I worked together for three years. That was a real gift. After she retired, Reverend Jen Crow came on board. Also a real gift. I was, as the expression goes, in that configuration, I was the big cheese, right? That was the role I was in, and that was how I led. I was the senior minister. I had that authority in the system, and I was happy in that role. I was really happy and comfortable in that role until, well, until, well, I wasn't so happy in that role because the Spirit started poking me and prodding me and nudging me and whispering to me about this vision of a new kind of ministry that could unfold, that, I was, that Jen and I were starting to sense. Here's how it went down. A few years ago, as Jen and I became a lot more honest and vulnerable in our professional relationship and our, our leadership in the congregation, and we began to acknowledge the gifts and the strengths and the weaknesses we each brought to ministry and the ways, we began to name honestly the ways that the structure, senior minister, associate minister, um, was restricting and limiting some of those gifts for both of us. I felt the spirit stirring in me. And I remember praying about this and journaling about this, writing a lot in my journal about what was moving in my soul. And one day when Jen and I were meeting with our therapist, coach, like person um, that we meet regularly with. It's so weird. It's not really a therapist, but he's like, he's a counselor, coach, advisor, other person that helps us in this, these moments of discerning. I, I pulled out my journal and I shared some of what I had written. And I want to share just a little bit of that with you. I, I wrote down, there is a sacred yes here that I want to follow. There is a sacred yes in this co-ministry that I want to follow. I trust that moving into co-ministry will be life-giving, I wrote down. I trust that this will open up in me a place of growth that I can scarcely imagine, and I want to do this. In other words, to ignore and not faithfully explore this vision of co-ministry with Jen, a vision we were both feeling, that didn't feel like an option to me. And I would be a liar up here this morning if I didn't also share with you as Jen and I moved toward co-ministry together how terrifying it often felt to let go of old ways of being, old patterns, old habits, and to take on new, more collaborative, more shared ways of being together. 
I didn't have a word for it at the time. But as Jen and I moved toward co-ministry and are now living in co-ministry, we were practicing what philosopher Jonathan Lear calls radical hope, a hope directed toward a future goodness that transcends the current ability to understand what it is. I'm going to say that again. Radical hope. It's a hope that is directed toward a future goodness that transcends the current ability to understand what that future goodness is. In other words, as the author Juno Diaz writes, radical hope is not so much something you have, but something you practice. It demands flexibility, openness, and what Jonathan Lear describes as imaginative excellence. So we've been living into co-ministry this year, mindful, more mindful than ever, of, of sexism and patriarchy, mindful of the gender dynamics between us, mindful of the different expectations of male and female leaders and leadership and working to combat those expectations. And as we live into this, this model of a new way of being in the world, not just the white male in power at the top, but this co-ministry, this sharing of power, there is something stirring in us and in this congregation. Something powerful is getting unlocked. And the church feels alive to me. You heard it earlier this morning. We have more children and youth in our religious education than ever before. And based on the recommendations of our board-appointed racial justice change team, we expanded our ministry team this last year. We brought on the Reverend Karen Hutt. She has named and shaped and changed this culture just in the year she's been here with us. I have learned from her. It has been a remarkable experience. She'll be with us next year. She's full-time at United Seminary, y'all. You have to understand, she's full-time at United Seminary and loving this so much, she wants to be here quarter-time with us again next year. So I'm psyched about that. Um, <clears throat> and, we have, and we have this vision that is bubbling up from our racial justice change team about the importance of having a full-time minister of color within four years, how much that matters for all of us. It matters for the folks of color who are in this community. It matters for the youth who are in this community who for the first time are starting to imagine themselves like, I could be... I could be a church, I could, I could be a minister, I could do this work. This, there's a whole aliveness that is happening. So we are living into our values in some profound and some deep ways. All of this is true. And as I write these words, as I share them now, as I feel the warmth of this place and the power of this community, there's a, there's a joy bubbling up in me, and I feel good, and yet... And yet, if you looked at the headlines of the paper, if you've been paying attention to the news, and yet, as Adrian Marie Brown says, we are also living in impossible times. Many of our elected leaders ignore the common good and the people that they represent. Many are actively promoting racist policies and are manufacturing this crisis at the border, the southern border, well, the real crisis. Thousands of children separated from their parents, the president's use of undocumented workers, white nationalists re-emboldened in this country, climate change, wildfires, droughts, all of that goes ignored. We're in a nightmare of obscene wealth disparity with millions of jobs that don't pay a living wage or offer a shred of dignity. It is not fiction. 
One out of three GoFundMe campaigns is to raise money to cover healthcare expenses. These are impossible times we're living in. And the old tactics of scapegoating immigrants, scapegoating brown and black-skinned people, Jews, it's being used once again with violence and hateful rhetoric rising. So church, our visions are ropes that can pull us through the devastation. Our visions, according to Valerie Kaur, are what give us hope that this time we're in is not darkness from the tomb, the darkness of death, the darkness of despair in ending, but the darkness of the womb, the darkness of new birth. And so we have got to find and to hold tight and pull together on a shared vision. It is important that Jen and I share this vision of co-ministry, but there has to be a bigger vision that we hold together. Again, from Adrian Marie Brown. When I read the news, when I look around, I feel I am in a long line of fools carrying the soul of the world in pieces, in overstuffed, mismatched luggage along a tightrope, over Borg, Replicator, Sauron, Darth, Voldemort's mouth. This is her language. We're on this tightrope over Borg, Replicator, Sauron, Darth, Voldemort's mouth holding this mismatched luggage with the soul of the world in each piece. But it is the soul of the world, she writes, and we hold it. So I look down, she says. I place my attention on my next move. I am focusing on who I love and who I want to build futures with, extending kindness and connection. Church, in these impossible times, what's our next move? Who do we want to build relationships with? Who do we want to deeply connect with? Who do we want to build a future with together? What's our vision? As you know, we are using this time, this year, as a time of discernment to figure out if co-locating in this building with Shirtikva makes sense. And as this idea has been percolating and bubbling, I am coming to believe that co-locating could be a practice of radical hope, a move to help us sharpen our multicultural anti-racism vision, a way to deepen our commitment to dismantling white supremacy culture, white nationalism, and anti-Semitism, and a way to move into an active, real relationship with another community. Co-locating could be a way to embody we are really in this together. This matters, being in it together. I'm not an expert on the history, but I've been digging up old articles and stories and sermons to understand the anti-Semitic history of the Twin Cities. You may know much of this history. I did not know all this history in the detail I've discovered. In the 1940s, Minneapolis was informally named the most anti-Semitic place in the country. At the time, Jews were denied certain jobs. Admission into athletic and country clubs was denied. Jews were prohibited from living in certain neighborhoods. There were Christian ministers preaching anti-Jewish messages. The Auto Club of Minneapolis refused Jewish members until 1948. 
Jewish medical students and doctors were refused residencies and jobs in the existing hospitals. So Jewish community leaders came together in 1951 to build Mount Sinai Hospital with a commitment to serve all patients. And some of you probably know this trivia, including all patients, including Prince, who was born there in 1958. All right? This anti-Semitism was about maintaining economic and political power here in this city. It kept control in the hands of white Christians. Though much has changed in the past 70 years, this is the history of this city. So it would mean something. It would mean something significant for us to be in a historically Jewish building, this building, in a historically anti-Semitic city, this city, it would mean something for us as a church to co-locate with a progressive Jewish community in this space. It would be an act of solidarity, of openness, of imaginative excellence, of vision we could hold on to. How you feeling? Curious, wondering. It's a vision we could hold on to. I don't know how this is going to unfold. None of us know how this is going to unfold. We're exploring. We're in discernment. The spirit is bubbling. There's more I want to share with you about why this feels like it could be a practice of radical hope. I've been doing some painful research into uh, white nationalism and how white nationalism functions, given that we've seen this emboldened white nationalist movement since the election of the president. However, as Eric Ward, a longtime civil rights activist and strategist, reminds us, the white nationalist movement precedes and predates Donald Trump, and it will be here long after Donald Trump. Ward continues, the white nationalist movement began because of the defeat of white supremacy by, or the partial defeat, I should say, of white supremacy by the civil rights movement. So, the fact that kind of white supremacy took a step back and, and voting rights and other things were secured, not equal, but steps were being made, had, white supremacy had to come to terms with that, had to understand why it was defeated. And its theory was that it lost not because blacks were intelligent or hardworking or demanded and deserved equality and equity in American society. The theory they created was that there was a Jewish cabal and there was this conspiracy to enslave white people. This is really the birth of white nationalism, explains Ward. And if you read their writings, if you look at their literature, if you look at the caricatures in their flyers, what you will often see in all of this white nationalist literature is this thread of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, Ward goes on, as it is explained within white nationalism, is the paper upon which all other forms of white nationalist bigotry are formed. So whether you're talking about blacks, about immigrants, about gays and lesbians, about Muslims, they are all in the minds of white nationalists controlled by a Jewish conspiracy that seeks to strip away white people's rights in the United States. You're following all of this. Okay, you know this. Maybe you don't. Some secret cabal, some mythological power must be manipulating the social order behind the scenes. This diabolic evil must control television, banking, entertainment, education, even Washington, D.C. It must be brainwashing white people, rendering them racially unconscious. Now here's what's interesting. Though many Jews look white, their whiteness is a relatively new thing. And it highlights the socially constructed nature of race and how who is white can change over time. 
Despite many Jews now passing as white, hum white nationalists do not see Jews as white or as even being human. As Eric Ward explains, at the bedrock of the movement is an explicit claim that Jews are a race of their own and that their ostensible position as white folks in the US represents the greatest trick the devil ever played. This is horrific stuff. For white nationalists, Jews are a different, unassimilable enemy race that must be exposed, defeated, and ultimately eliminated. Now here's what I want you to hear, church. Eric Ward, who has spent his lifetime studying this, he's a black man, and he's basically said, my liberation is wrapped up in the eradication of white nationalism because the strands of anti-Semitism and anti-blackness that live in white nationalism are so fierce that my life is in jeopardy as long as there are white nationalists out there. He concludes by saying this, we cannot be isolated in this moment. The white nationalist movement wants us to be isolated. It wants us to be alone. But there are more of us than there are of them. And by coming together, we build the momentum to build the solutions about an America we see, one that is united, one that moves us forward, one that's grounded in opportunity and equity. <clears throat> I'm just scratching the surface of anti-Semitism and white nationalism and Jewish racial identity. But one thing I am clear about is this. Co-locating with Shirtikva would bring all of this to the surface. Our racial analysis and understanding of anti-Semitism would be deepened. Together, Shirtikva and First Universalists would be actively modeling solidarity and mutual support. And the truth is, I don't know exactly how co-locating would play out, but that's okay. As author Rebecca Solnit writes, hope locates itself in the premise, in the premises, that we don't know what will happen, and that in the spaciousness of uncertainty, there is room to act. Hope is an embrace of the unknown and the unknowable, an alternative to the certainty of both optimists and pessimists. I don't know where co-locating might lead us, but I do know it would open us up to possibilities we can't even imagine. In co-locating, we reimagine who our building is for and how it's used. We begin to flex a certain muscle, a certain spiritual muscle we haven't flexed before. We begin to change our culture and our practices, maybe even the expression of who we are. Our vision of who we are and who we are meant to be expands. Maybe we share resources and learn to work together in new ways. Here's what I can tell you. My heart is alive in this co-ministry with Jen. And as we followed the spirit into co-ministry, it wasn't clear what would unfold. It was a leap of faith. And what we are seeing now is that other colleagues from around the country are now calling us, are reaching out to us, are asking about, okay, so you're doing co-ministry. How is that working? What's the model there? How did you get there? How could we implement this in our own context? I have no idea how co-location with Shirtikva might unfold, but I could imagine it opening up a space for us to ask again and again, what other small organizations could we co-locate with? Who could we share space with? Who could we partner with? I could imagine we would ask, how else might we practice radical hope in these impossible times? How else can our vision be a rope leading us through the devastation? 
And if we move forward with co-location, I imagine our children, the babies and the young among us, I've been hearing some of them back there, and it's, it's awesome. They are taking this in right now. I imagine these very children and babies 15 years, 20 years from now, 25 years from now, saying to us, my church taught me to hope, to practice radical hope, to dream, to act, to reimagine what this building was about, to fight anti-Semitism, to fight racism, to fight homophobia. My church taught me that. My church taught me to hold fast to a vision and follow it. My church taught me to focus on who I love and who I want to build a future with. My church taught me to follow the promptings of the Spirit. My church taught me that. Friends, this is the moment we're in. How will we respond. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F I R S T U N I V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.